Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Living with XXY podcast series. I'm your host, Ryan Briganti. So today we have a mother, Colleen, from the UK. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you. How are you? Doing well. So I think Colleen is probably one of the first or second mothers from the UK to be on the podcast. And so we're really excited to have her kind of share her story about her son's life. So can you kind of get us started with when you started to, you know, um, when your son started to have things that popped up and you started to get, you know, you kind of had this concern of, okay, we need to, we need to like find help or at what age and, and kind of, can you just get started with that? Oh, well, how long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah. So, uh, Jackson, I have a, I have a absolutely lovely son, Jackson, who I love to bits. Even when I hate him, I absolutely love him. But, um, he came to me, um, early. So he was born about 29 weeks. So he was always on this sort of like medical records of, you know, somebody to watch because he had a very awkward start in life. So a lot of things were sort of swept under the carpet, shall we say, in terms of milestones, because he was considered to be very premature and, you know, just can delay certain aspects. And then um, when he was about we noticed he wasn't speaking he was absolutely mute but he was very good at communicating so he would do lots of pointing for things that he wanted and in the UK we were kind of sent for um, lots of uh, speech therapy and group speech therapy where we would sort of enforce our children to come up with answers so you would never ask them say for instance an open-ended question like what do you want because that is just, you know, mind-blowing to a child with speech problems. It would be like, do you want this or do you want that? And um, and he still even struggled with those kind of answers. But I think over time, you know, when we kind of got into schools and speech therapy was provided for us, we had um, uh, concerns that there was just something amiss. We couldn't quite put our finger on it, but it was just something was amiss. However, you know, let's just carry on and see where we land with everything. So it was a very long process, and it's really odd because he had very severe asthma. He had very severe um, um, allergies, but again, that was related to being premature. But I remember once. Um, something that still sticks with me to this day that we were hospitalized for asthma and allergies and when they put the cannula into his the back of his hands he he didn't flinch he didn't you know he didn't do anything and even the nurse said oh that's really odd I'm, I'm going to put that in his notes and I, I remember thinking to myself well why is that so odd I just have a, a really lovely child you know and she was like no no no, no that's really odd and I was like, oh, okay. And I just kind of dismissed it. And um, now in hindsight, it's because um, XX wife boys are known to be quite passive as younger children. So that was kind of my first real big kind of red flag. And then we were another time in the hospital and we had routine bloods when he was about, I think, 14. And some of his bloods came back um, very odd so they 
called me up and I'll never forget it because it was kind of during COVID. It wasn't that long ago. And it was one of the doctors from the hospital. And she said, um, yeah, I'm just kind of going through my notes and, uh, you know, nothing to be alarmed about. But we, you know, something's just not right with Jackson's um, blood. So we just, you know, don't worry. It's nothing, you know, important or anything like that. But we just like to invite him in and give him some routine blood tests again. And I remember thinking, mm, is it really not that important? Because usually they would send like a letter. So anyway, it was odd to receive that phone call. Oh, it was like 9 o'clock p.m., you know, on a Sunday, which is just unheard of for the NHS. And anyway, we kind of went back in and we had blood tests and they were still not great. Uh, he had high whatever and low whatever and, you know, definitely needed questioning. So I started Googling about, you know, what what did that really mean? What does high this mean? What does low that mean? And obviously everything started pointing to Kleinfelter syndrome. So I kind of Googled and as I was reading the sort of um, symptoms, I just started crying. I was just like, oh my God, this is my son. This is my son. A hundred percent. It's. Half of me was crying because I was happy, and half of me was crying because I was really sad. I didn't know what what I really felt. I just kind of felt like, you know, here, here did we find ourselves, or are we traveling down a road that I really know nothing of? I couldn't quite work it out at that time. And um, you know, I called some friends who have children with disabilities, and I told them, and they were like, oh. Oh my God, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, you're not very helpful right now because I need you guys to be strong with me because, you know, at the end of the day, he's a young child and we have to support him. We can't cry. And I remember I called my mother and she was hysterical and I had to put the phone down on her and I said, look, you know, I'm calling you for support. I'm not calling for you to take sympathy on me. I want you to be my pillar of support saying, what are you crying about? It's nothing. Move on. I don't want everybody to feel sorry for us because, you know, if he has this condition, it is what it is. And we need to move forward with it. There's nothing wrong with it. We just need to accept it and move on. So it was hard. But, you know, that is definitely the right choice or not choice, but the right method, shall we say. And, um, yeah, so we went to various doctors. They said they had a suspicion. They sent him for a um, a puberty check because I think he was 14 or 15 at the time that this happened. And they said his puberty was delayed. But, you know, his whole life he was delayed due to being premature at the time is what we thought. And, um you know, his testicles came back small and they showed me what they looked like with these kind of like wooden um, blocks. And um, and I remember crying really bad and my son was very supportive of me. He was like, don't worry, mom, don't worry. And I was just like, and I just remember thinking it was, it was harder on me than it was my son. And um, which, you know, may be the case for a lot of other people out there. And we, um, 
you know, my the the doctor in charge was very uh, good by saying, you know, if you're before we send him to um, genetic testing, we think that you would benefit from genetic counseling. So they kind of sent me to speak to somebody, and I I, I think it's just the shock. Do you know what I mean of knowing? Um, on top of everything, because, you know, all my life with my child, I had this premature child, and then I had, you know, speech problems, and then we had delay problems, and, you know, it, it was, and I just kind of thought, oh my God, it's just another avenue I need to kind of walk down. So it was, it was a bit sad, but, and you know, now looking at it in hindsight, it, it, you know, we, we have, we have recovered. Um, so yeah, so that's what happened. We did the genetic testing, and it did come back from as um, XXY Klein Filters, and the gen his doctor, who's an endocrinologist, said that you know he showed him a little book, kind of showing him all the different kind of genetic problems, and you know we spoke about Down's people and this and that and whatever and what his looked like, and you know one of the things that they covered was a lot of people don't even know that they have this. You know, because it's, it's a spectrum condition. Some can have it very mildly. Some can have it really strongly. Um, you know, and it is what it is. So the most important thing is to get the right support in place as early as possible. And when I refer to that, it's kind of like, I guess, getting the right support in place with in terms of your family, maybe your education, getting people to support you, making sure that you have the right um, maybe speech and language or the schooling or whatever it is um, from the educational side, supporting that and just, you know, moving on in society. But, um, yeah, it was um, a very long, long road traveled. So you went his entire life until he was 15 before he received a diagnosis. Yes. Which is really um, upsetting because when I read about it, it said that there are things that you could do at a younger age that could help. And I remember thinking to my doctor, like, you know, why didn't we just do this so long ago? And I was quite angry. But actually, you know, to be honest, pick your battles. I mean, I'd love to be angry at my doctor, but really not my doctor's fault i need to move on um and i i just need to make sure that jackson has the best life you know he could possibly have yeah so I, i'm putting all that energy into making sure that he is good yeah i think that you know the like the 25 percent to 30 percent diagnosis rate with this community is you know so small within that and so a lot there's a lot of you know a lot of parents getting their, when their son is diagnosed later on or, or an adult is diagnosed, um, like men, a lot of men are getting diagnosed trying to have kids. And um, they're like, how did this go? How did I go my whole life not knowing about this and then finding out I'm infertile? And so I think the biggest thing is, is like we're part of that 25% that is diagnosed and that there is like that 75% that isn't diagnosed. And so, yeah, like, terrible. like you said, we can be mad at our doctors and we can be mad at like, well, we could have done this or what if we did this? And it's like, well, 
from the moment you get diagnosed, now you know, now you have the opportunity to help in all those various ways. And um, it's, it's, I mean, the more like, like, like coming out and, and talking about it, the more that people open up about it, talk about it, maybe the, you know, over time, um, the diagnosis rate will get younger. And right now there's in the States, I know that it's not current in the UK, but we, we have non-invasive prenatal testing. So a lot of families are finding out in utero. Um, oh. so what, at what age did your son speak? Like did, were there, were there hard markers looking back, like, mo- like monumental moments of where your son was having challenges or delay that you can kind of remember? Well, he was um, he was very delayed, and he didn't actually start speaking until he was about four. And he has um, he's got terrible speech and language now, but it didn't stop him from being a totally cool kid. Do you know what I mean? He is he is very happy now, being who he is and accepting that he has this language impairment, and he's had some really good speech and language therapy. So he, you know, he can, he's learned to turn conversations around. I think, you know, obviously he will have challenges in life because, you know, he's 17 and we're looking, what kind of career can he have? And I was like, well, Jackson, let's, let's work out what we, what you can't expect, shall we? Because, um, and I mean it, 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 you know, for me, that's like a term of endearment. It's not like a negativity. It's kind of like, well, let's work out what isn't working for you. So we can work out, say, working on a call center, would it be a good option? Or working in customer service, that would not be a good option for him. Or anywhere that would really heavily apply on his um, sort of working memory, his writing skills to write things down. Yet, because he's only young. You know, I think he will get there in due course, but at the moment, he's still quite young. But what he is really good at is that he's very personable. Everybody that meets him absolutely loves him. He's got quite a good little sort of, um, you know, doggy daycare system going up. And, you know, I said to him, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a small business owner. You know, they can make really good money. They can employ people. They can do all sorts of things. So we're exploring little avenues for him, what his next kind of stage in life is going to look like. But as a mother, I can't expect him to move out at the age of 18 like a lot of them do. So, uh, Ryan, I'm curious, when did you move away from your mother? Um. So my parents, um, let's see. 18 graduated high school then I moved out later on after high school and I lived with two guy friends um here in San Diego that worked out I was supposedly supposedly I was supposed to be going to junior college while working um so yeah in order to go to the culinary school that I wanted to go to I had to have nine months of culinary experience and so wow. I, I didn't have a job in high school because high school was so difficult for me um, my parents were like it? yeah it was it was it was a it was a real challenge um, I my mom said that when I graduated high school is the happiest day of her life um, there, I didn't know that until later on in life um, I recently learned that but Um, so 19, I lived on my own in San Diego, going to junior college and working. And then, um, after I 
I applied to culinary school. I got in and I moved. It was a huge culture shock, I would say, or a huge just difference. I moved from San Diego, California, all the way to New York, um, upstate New York, a small town called Hyde Park, which is near Poughkeepsie. It's about two hours north of Manhattan um, or New York City. And so that was, I remember my parents dropping me off in culinary school. Um, so that was the first time that I was on my own. Oh, well, I'm very pleased that you've managed to do it. It's very insightful for people like me who is, uh, you know, I'm just a couple of years behind your mother, shall we say. Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's it's definitely possible. Um, and I do know that some of the families and some of the boys do tend to, um, like, they're not sure what they want to do in life. And, and that's at 19 or 18, like, like it, my career has changed multiple times throughout the last, throughout my life. Um, I thought I was yeah. going to be a chef forever. And, and that, that didn't last. I mean, that lasted for 10 years, but, and I'm still, I could still say I'm a chef. I just don't work in the culinary world at, at a restaurant. Um, I, but I've, and, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was no, just going to okay. ask. It's funny because my son loves watching Gordon Ramsay, which is really funny that you mentioned you're a chef. And, but I don't think he has the, um, the profile to deal with stressful situations. And I think kind of in cooking, it can be, uh, it's all about timing, isn't it? And plate spinning and problem solving. I was wondering if, if you felt those were the things that maybe held you back in culinary? Or no, I just preferred. I excelled. Um, I think that like a lot of the, it like a lot of us are very hands-on visual kinetic learners. Um, and then right. a lot of, like doctors will say you have ADHD or ADD and ADHD in the culinary world is like a, a it's like a gift um, to be able to multitask, <laughs> to be able to multitask and be able to do different things. And, and, you know, it's a learned experience, right? So when you go into a restaurant, you start at the bottom and, and there's this, there's this kind of, it doesn't, a lot of, some of the places, it doesn't matter what your resume is or what you get hired for, what position, what, if you get hired for a grill cook, they still start you out in garmage, uh, which is like the, which is all the cold stuff. So it's usually the easiest station to run, um, is the, is not with the hot food, the cold food. So you're making the salads or crudo, whatever the style of restaurant you're in. Yeah. You're starting at the bottom and then you work up to maybe a hot appetizer um, like station where you have you're cooking the app, the hot appetizers and then you you kind of excel. You know, you get you get an opportunity to work the veg station where you're making all the vegetables for some of the hot dishes. And every restaurant is different in how they're kind of um, the stations are designed. But there's a lot of camaraderie yeah. in, in the restaurant industry. So it can be it, it, it definitely is really stressful. I think like le- once you learn, it, I think confidence is a big thing that you learn. So I, it's I think that there's a lot of opportunity for you know our community to go into the culinary culinary arts or into other creative fields like electrician or plumber. You know things with that we're working with our hands. Um, but there, yeah. there there are guys that have PhDs and there's guys that have master's degrees and other you know um, engineers that require lots of schooling and and lots of testing and, and things like that. And like you said, it's a spectrum. Um, I, I think that, 
you don't know unless you try. And I think putting yourself in putting, you know, either I think we need to be pushed. And I think some of the boys need to be pushed more than others. And so their parents yeah. pushing them, they might not like it. There might be lots of arguments from it. But I, I could say that my parents pushed me and I'm glad they did because it yeah. I proved to myself that like I'm more capable than I thought I was. Oh, well done. Yeah. So well, go ahead. I know. I was going to say it's really good to hear actually because I kind of feel, yeah, I need to push my, my son into, you know, areas. And it's often the way sometimes, you know, I, you know, I think I remember once I was forcing him to go to this kind of um, leisure center, which is kind of like, I, it's owned by the council and it's like sporty and it's, you know, it's free to go in the evenings. And so I, the idea is to keep children off the street by giving them sports and whatever. And he cried all the way there. And I was like, oh my God, you know, my son is so backwards. I, you know, usually parents are preventing their children from having a good time, and that's why they cry. And here I am taking my child to have fun, and he's crying all the way there. But anyway, he ended up going in and having a fantastic time, and he has been back every single week. So I think it is really good you persevere with pushing children. Absolutely. Well done for your parents doing the same to you. So what um like once you you know you googled it before you got a diagnosis what information what information did you find what what was you know when you were like oh my god this is like my son like what's what kind of things did you find and what kind of things once you got the diagnosis and you started to learn about it what were you finding uh, well um it it Initially, it was really bad, um, as you can imagine. And I think I remember hearing you mention there was like a couple of people that had their eyes blacked out and really bad. They were talking about body shapes. And and I think it also kind of started when I was first initially Googling. It also had like potential serial killers or convicts in, in police cells and I mean, it was quite shocking that um, serial killers were on the high with Klein-Felter syndrome or something. But also, as you carry on Googling, it, I mean, nowadays, it even says that Tom Cruise has it. So you have to be really, really careful what you read on the Internet. In fact, I'm going to Google it now as we speak because I'm in the UK and our search engines are different. But um, I'll it, tell you what comes up. Yeah, it says it also says like Jamie Lee Curtis, and I I I do know the serial killer aspect. Aren't we're on Wikipedia? There was one transgender porn star and five serial killers or uh, rapists, etc. Like the most extreme of those environments, and those were the references for Kleinfelder syndrome. There was no there was no one successful. There was no there was there was nothing when it came to references on Kleinfelder syndrome. Um, on Wikipedia. And I do believe that um, after some hard work, those those references are all gone now um, on Wikipedia. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, well, well done to whoever arranged that because it, it, it was just, um, you know, you can't help. There's, there's, um, you can't help but thinking that you're associated to those. 
you know, if people keep reading them and, and you shouldn't be associated to those. So um, up here at the moment, I am probably, I, I do get a lot of American things. I've got like Mayo Clinic and um, Wikipedia, WebMD, Kids Health, things like that. And then I've got the UK stuff. So it says here like the National Organization for Rare Diseases. But, you know, is it is it a rare disease? I don't think so. Yeah, I think I think that's a hard I think that's a hard aspect for our community when you think about it, right? Like our community pro- doesn't view it as a disease or a lot of us also don't view it as a disability. Um there exactly. there are challenges that we face, but it's not like we can't overcome the challenges. And so and 100%. And then also syndrome is also another another word that, you know, is has a negative connotation to it. So I think the hard part here is like pick and choose our battles with um, at least it's out there in some form of, of awareness in, in some capacity is, are the word choices, the best choices for how our community might view it? No, but things like that don't change until people actually open up and use their voice and say, Hey, this isn't a, we don't, our community doesn't feel that this is a disease. You know, it's not, it's not a light, it's not terminal in, in those regards. No, it isn't. And actually the same about like, you know, autism. We have a lot of friends who have autism, which again is a spectrum thing. They get mild um, where people may find like eating a little bit weird and then you get really, really severe, which is kind of, you know, unpredictable. But, um, you know, I don't think autism is, is very... Um, it shouldn't be seen as negative and I definitely don't think Kleinfeld syndrome should be seen as negative it is just one of those things you know we all have our quirks we all have our differences and it's it's what makes people unique so and if everyone if everyone was the same it would be a boring world to live in exactly it'd be a bunch of robots (laughs) so when when you when your son got diagnosed and, you know, what kind of help did you receive from, what kind of doctors did you start seeing? Did you start seeing different doctors? Were there some answers to, obviously you have, he was also a preemie. So there's another, there's that challenge there. Like, did you have, did you start to receive more help? Well, it's hard to say because I remember thinking, when I knew the diagnosis was coming, I was on my own and I felt really scared where we were going with this because obviously I had a lot to learn. And in hindsight, you know, I can see myself, it was kind of, I, I, I think if I had any advice for anybody, it's like, you know what, cross those bridges when you get to them because you'll spend a lot of time going, oh, well, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And you know what, what if they don't happen? You've wasted all that time thinking they would. So cross bridges when you, you know, when you come to them. But um, I had really good uh, care in terms of like medical people. The hospital kind of put me in contact with various people, which was a slow start. But once they were on board, it was fantastic. Um, they provide me lots of information that I could give my son's school about how to teach him best. 
which was fantastic because I've always felt like I was the mother saying, you're not doing it right. He doesn't, you know, he needs this, he needs that. And they're just like, you're crazy. And I'm sure a lot of other parents out there feel the same. But um, I've got lots of um, documentation to give me support in terms of education. So that was good. But it took ages to get on to testosterone for him. In fact, he's 17 and he's only ever had one injection. Wow. I know. What's what's so the holdup? I well, so we when we wanted to do um, when we had the suspicion he had um, XXY, they said, okay, we're going to send you to this endocrinologist who has a very good background in this field and so on and so forth. And I had to wait six months to get an appointment with him. And then when we got there, I said, oh, I think my son has Klonfelty syndrome. And he was like, he may. And I was like, yeah, he may. And uh, and I said, and I'd like to go for medical testing. And he said, it's something we can talk about. And I remember thinking, well, I'm here now. Can't we just do it today? Because it's something I, I want. You know, it's not like something I need to think about. something I want. And he then slowed the process down. So that kind of took, you know, ages to go for testing. And then we went for testing. And then they wanted to give me therapy. And they gave me therapy. And, you know, and then I had to wait to have another meeting with him. And then it was the confirmation. And then the confirmation took, um, you know, kind of like, oh, we'll see you in six months. And I was like, six months? Like, you know, I want to see you next week. Like, let's move on. And it was a very slow process. So then we went to, um, you know, we went back and they said, well, we want to do some blood tests with him. And then we had difficulty doing the blood test because he wanted to have early morning blood to see what his testosterone levels were. And when they came back, he said they were adequate. And I was like, well, what does that mean? You know, adequate. What does that mean in like the grand scale of things? And he said, well, you know, he's producing testosterone on his own. He doesn't need testosterone. So I was like, okay. And then when I, like, Googled, like, you know, you received the blood test back, it says that it was quite, actually, it was quite low. So I remember thinking, hmm, that's suspicious. Okay, I'm going to keep my eye on that. And then we went back to the doctor, and he said that, um, oh, yeah, we'll do another blood test, check his testosterone levels. So I was like, okay. And then... You know, we had to arrange for those. They couldn't be on the spot because they had to be early morning and all that kind of stuff. And then it just kind of dragged on. And then it was like, it just it just went on for ages. And basically what's happened, to cut a long story short, that the last time I met with my doctor or his doctor, who's an endocrinologist, he said that, um, that he would send him for... Um, uh, testosterone so I think he received only one milligram or something and um, you know we're going to build him up from that but it was really funny to receive the letter when he wrote to his general practitioner to say please you know provide this trials with testosterone they're very low it's like oh you're using the same blood tests that you've always told me that were you know adequate now you're telling me they're very low 
so yeah, he's 17 and a half. In fact, he's going to turn 18 in um, February 2nd. So just, you know, just right after January. And he is, in my eyes, miles away from where he should be in turning into a man, is how, is, is how they put it. So he's he's behind in the aspect of his peers. His peers are well ahead of him in the in oh. growth and and academic and in in those regards. What as yeah. far as the testosterone and, goes, do you know the do you know that the low symptom like what the low symptoms of testosterone are, and is your son experiencing those? Um, well, he asked him if he was like tired, which he is. But then again, he's a lazy teenager. So I don't know. I'm just kind of like I'm. I'm a little bit in between reality and what I read online. So that's I mean, difficult. You, it is. It is difficult. And to be honest, I don't think I know any other parents who have this problem. Well, there's or a this diagnosis. I mean, do you, so yeah. you haven't met. You haven't met anyone in the UK that also has a son with XXY? No. Okay, well, when this podcast is over, I'll connect you. I've got I've got a list of probably like 5 or 600 people in in the UK that have XXY. So, and I have it on a oh, I have it on a map. So, I'll I'll be able to connect you with a lot of people. Um probably probably too many to start, but but we can we can connect you and and get you connected with other moms or you call a mum there over there. Um, we did, yeah. so we'll, we'll, con- we'll connect you so you can start to talk to people and, and, um, get some support in that area. I think that's, that can be super beneficial to start asking, well, when did your son start it? And what's the dip, you know, what has he noticed in his, himself and, and things like that? You might be able to start putting some pieces together. So your son got diagnosed over COVID if, if that's kind yeah. of like right in the, so everything was delayed regard already and then everything has been kind of just keeps being delayed for you guys it seems well yeah i think what it's do you know what's really annoying i'm sorry but i'm gonna have a little moan at this moment because the endocrinology unit in the uk also looks after the gender clinic and um i i find that my son who's a male who identifies as a male who who has been asking to receive testosterone for quite a few years before he was actually received it. Um, You know, and there was a pushback. And I kind of see, you know, children who were having gender crisis, I mean, no disrespect to them, but they seem to be given an edge in sideways, shall we say, where they kind of, they seem to be like, well, you know, it's priority for them because they're mentally upset about the conditions they have. But, you know, my son's very mentally upset with the condition he has as well. So I don't know how that it comes across in the, U- in the USA, but over here, it's just kind of like, it, it, it's just, it's hard to, to go on hormone replacement as a child. Yeah, I think, I think it's happening here too, especially with every state is different here in the United States with it come when it comes to this, this stuff. And it's a lot of it's, a lot of this information is like relatively really new. 
I think that because mm-hmm. there isn't a lot of awareness about Klinefelter syndrome, not a lot of doctors fully understand it or have a lot of education in it. So when it comes to, no, they can't yeah. And so when it comes to hormone replacement therapy, you know, it at the end of the day, it's our community. It's the moms, the dads, and the, the sons that have it that have to become the biggest advocates. And when you're, when you have speech delay or when your expressive language is really difficult or sticking up for yourself or, or, you know, and also at 17, like not knowing very much about XXY, you know, I think the hard part here is a lot of boys just want to be boys and they just want to live their life. And the X, the, the Kleinfelter XXY aspect of their life is impactful, but at 17, it's, it's not a, it's not a need. It's not a, you don't want to, you don't want to reason on why you're different from everyone else when you just want to fit in. Um, and I think, exactly. I think acceptance is, you know, whether it's XXY or whether it's not, you have normal chromosomes or you have not normal chromosomes in the way I view it, right? Like you have XY or XX or you're male or female or whatever that is like acceptance in your own life is the, probably the most important thing that you, once you accept yourself for who you are, regardless then you're able to move forward, not caring about what people think about you, not, you know, being able to advocate for yourself and use your voice and know when when a doctor tells you no, but you know that that's not right, you know, or you know that you're, you need to advocate for yourself. That's when you have to speak up. And unfortunately, Mm. I think here, depending on the insurance you have, because I know it's different in the UK, um, you can, advocate to have a new doctor or you can advocate to change yeah. doctors when I don't necessarily know how that is in your medical system. No. Well, you know, you have your your national insurance doctor and then if you have loads of money, then you can go privately and choose any doctor you want. So it depends on how much money you have at the end of the day. But it's interesting that you mentioned kind of like being 17 because we have a We've had our first injection of testosterone. It was one mil, um, and now my son's supposed to have. Uh, we have like three appointments to have another mil, and then we have a follow-up appointment with his consultant to find out how he's getting on. But I don't really know what we're going to say. Do you know what I mean? We're not going to say, "Oh, everything's great," or I, you know, it, when you have these follow-ups, it's kind of like, "Well, what are what?" You know, what are our benchmarks? What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to see? Where are we trying to go? You know, what does good look like? You know, we have a lot of those kind of questions for my son. But um, we did receive, I have to say, I hope this doesn't get edited out, but we did receive a um, uh, an appointment for my son to see a urologist recently. And he's never seen a urologist. And um, it's just this kind of like dark doctor's notice on our, you know, refrigerator in the kitchen saying that he has to go see this urologist. And um, he, Jackson's like, what's it about? And I was like, well, I don't know. But, you know, I've got a feeling you're going to have to go to this appointment. And I don't really think you want me in the room with you when you go to this appointment and he was like well then I don't want to go and it's like well what do we do because he can't really go in there and have this gentleman ask him a bunch of questions about 
boy private parts and all that kind of stuff. Sex, like sexual, sexual health. Exactly, because, you know, I just think, yes, I I think he's going to ask some questions about, you know, where they see him. I mean, I have to say, in the UK, it's really good because you belong to, like, an XXY clinic. And then from the ages of kind of 18, you get passed over to the adult one. And you're automatically qualified to receive kind of fertility support and... um, uh, I think probably, you know, you get to see a urologist if you have any sort of like dysfunction and, you know, you, you do get a lot of support. But, you know, for a 17-year-old boy to then be thrown over from, you know, sitting in the kid's waiting room to kind of like worrying about things that he's probably not even aware of at this stage in life is, you know, that there needs to be a balance. So I think there needs to be some improvements, even though it's a good system to have. It definitely needs to be some improvements. And like you said, there needs to be a lot of better awareness of kind of like, where is this going and how is everybody getting there? And, you know, the severity for some may not be the same for others. Yeah, so. I, th- I think I can I can put some information out there on, on this. I mean, I'm not a doctor and I'm not, by all means, I'm not an expert. but. Um, I think that if you know you're going to go see a urologist, so then having your son looking it up on Google and like looking at what is a urologist, what it, what do they what do they do? Obviously, men's health is what a urologist is, right? And um, endo- yeah. endocrinology is, I think, women and it's women and men. So um, you're going to go see a doctor, you know, specifically geared towards towards men's health in that aspect. Um, obviously, urology is all about you know the nether regions down there in the, in those aspects. Um, I do know here in the States, a lot of urologists prescribe testosterone and manage. There's quite a few guys that don't see endocrinologists. They see urologists. It's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. They, yeah. and they, they do testosterone as well. Um, obviously you could go with him. Right. And when the doctor needs to, to have him pull down his pants to check things, um, you could leave the room. And so you're there, you're there with your son to be able to pause, you know, possibly answer the questions. I think, I think this is like the transition period that a lot of families and it's not, you know, a medical in general, there's a hard, I, I think that everyone, regardless of XXY or not has a hard time with, okay, my parents manage all my medical stuff. Now I'm 18. Yeah. Now it's my, like, I have to learn all this stuff. And I think with, if you're, if you're already you know, some of the moms and families and doctors say like some of the boys can be like three to five years behind maturity level of their peers. Yeah. And so there there might, even though he's 17 or 18, he might be maturity of like a 16 year old still. And so going to the, he is. yeah, exactly. so going to the doctor by himself, taking himself there, making sure he gets there is one thing. And then, you know, no, like having these doctors ask them a bunch of questions when they don't even know the answers or what the questions even mean is another thing. And so I think you could possibly like prepare for it to where he yeah. know he knows that, Hey, they're probably going to take your pants down and check your testicles and your penis size, you know, growth or whatever. And then he's going to ask you a bunch of questions based on sexual health that I don't, you know, I want, like I don't need to be in the room because that you're an adult, like you're, 
you know, these are things that you can, you know, talk with a doctor about. He might be embarrassed to talk about them because he's never, he's never talked about them before. And if your son's open with it then going over that stuff at home where he feels comfortable with you, then he could feel comfortable with another adult talking about it. And, and like, just knowing not, it's kind of like the dentist. If you, if you don't tell your kids what the dentist is about, which most parents don't, then they go into it. Well, everyone hates the dentist. Like nobody enjoys going to the dentist. That's really good um, advice, actually. I think um, you're going to be a fantastic father when you get there. That is really good advice. A lot of people say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm yeah, not. You're right. I'm you're not ready for that. Head. But um, I've got. You never I, know. Yeah, my well, my dad had me when they were when he was 50, and my mom was 42. So I mean, I've got. I'm 37. I've got 13 more years if I want to. You know be at my, where my dad was when it came to being a father. And, you know, it, it's never been on my radar, but I know that it's not, it's not off my radar, if that makes sense. Oh, it'd be interesting to follow you and see what ends up for you. Um, you know, in the journeys that you go through to get there, if you need support or if you don't need support or, you know, because everybody's story is a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And I'm, I'm totally, you know, my life is online and, and I, I have no problem talking about the struggles I had. I think the thing is, is but with the struggles and, um, is that I don't want sympathy, like exactly, like exactly what, you, when you called your mom, like you don't want sympathy for it. You want to, you want no. support. And I think that's a hard, that's a hard aspect is like, I'll share anything. But I don't want people to give me sympathy because I was bullied or give, no. give me sympathy because I can't have biological kids. Um, Good. Yeah. And that, I think that's that become that I think that's with the cross line that makes it hard to talk about those things is I want to, but it has to be in the right context. And I don't want people to sympathize because I had a harder time at one thing um, than I did at, you know, maybe something that someone else had a hard time with. So. Um, so what, I guess the testosterone journey is still ongoing. And I know that a lot of people in our community probably don't know, but in the UK, their testosterone is a lot different. The options are a lot different than what we have in the States. Have they given you options or is it just the Nibido, um, injection into the glute? Well, um, they gave us two options. They offered us to take gel on a daily basis. Um, and they offered us for an injection. And as my son takes asthma medicine on a daily basis and never, ever, ever remembers to take it, I suggested he went for the injection. So he goes for the injection. He didn't like his first injection. He said it really hurt and his, his um, bum hurt for uh, quite a few weeks afterwards. He's dreading going back for the second injection, but there's just no way I would trust him to take the gel every day. So we're going to carry on with this until we have our next kind of follow-up and see if there's, you know, anything else he can take. So I think there is a, um, I think there's one more thing, which is like a patch. Do you have patches? Yes, we do. Um, it's not a popular... Um, I tried it when I was younger, when I was in high school, probably 
a little like 16, 15, 16, 17, somewhere around there. I did it for a few months. Um, the patch is can can be the, the adhesive can be irritating to the skin. And then I know yeah. that you have to wear it for 24 hours and you have to move it to, you can't wear it in the same place twice because it can be, okay. it, it can be, irrit and obviously the patches that we have here are different from the patches probably that you have there. Um, or they yeah. might be, they might be relatively the same, but it's a 24 hour patch and I wore it on my legs when I was younger. But what I found is like on spring break, going swimming in the pool, the patch would fall off, um, sweating, oh dear, yeah. like any, any type of excessive sweat. So if you're playing sports or you're running around getting exercise, the patch would, the adhesive would, would fall off. Um, I do know a couple individuals that are on the patch and they put it, they have their spouse, put it on their back. Um, and they move it around on their back, but it's not, it's definitely not a popular choice and it's kind of like the gel like you have me laughing hysterically off mic of what you're saying about the the testosterone um a lot of <laughs> i think it's the executive function aspect of the boys of the, yep. the remembering to like brush your teeth remembering to take a shower like the daily hygiene routine and yep. a lot of the boys yep. is like non-existent or they have to, like they're in high school or they're in you know they're 17 and they are like they're five. They're like there is. Yeah. They have to be constantly reminded to do the daily routines of life. Can I ask how long have you been on um, just, uh, HRT for then? So I started since I was diagnosed in utero. Um, there wasn't very much information, and I started at thirteen. Um, when they did my blood, wow. when they did my blood work and I was on a monthly injection in my deltoid, I would get it in my left arm because it, I, it would make my, it would cause quite a lot of pain or, or muscle tenderness. I would say, um, yeah. it, maybe two to three days after, and I'm right-handed and I played sports with right hand. So I didn't want it affecting my, you know, if it, if it was going to affect it. So I always got my injection in my deltoid, um, once a month. And then after high school, when I went to culinary school, they wouldn't allow me to do it. So I had to go to the nurse's office and they switched it from once a month to once every three weeks. And then the course of life changed and it went from, as you know, I, I would say like, Oh, I'm irritable and I'm just, I have low energy. Then it went to once every two weeks when I was probably in my mid twenties. Um, and then yeah. it didn't. And then I finally was like, well, can I do it once a week? And then, um, I, I think I've been on once a week injections for like seven, seven or eight, six, somewhere around there. I probably no more than that now. So I probably started once a week in my late twenties is probably when I started that yeah. and that moved around. So I would do it my legs. I would do it my glute. Um, I've, you know, and then recently I started doing it subcutaneously, which is into the belly fat, but we're not. Yeah. So I think the difference here with a lot of people is Nibido is N-E-B-I-D-O. I'm trying to – I think it's a 1,000 – what is it? It's a like a 1,000 ml or – yeah, it's a 1,000 milligram. It's yeah. four It's four ml for those of you in, a, in the States that don't know. And it's an injection yeah. with a pretty big needle in your glute. And every guy that I've talked to is is saying what your son says. 
it makes your butt sore for quite a few days after or a week after. And it yeah. makes them feel really good for the two months or possibly three months that they're on it. And then there's a, a pretty long die off period where they don't feel very good um, for a yeah. couple of weeks before their next injection. And they're dread. Oh, really? They're well. Some of the some of the guys have said that. So a lot. Some of the guys have said that you know they've. It, and then in Australia, I think they do the same thing. They they have one or two more options in Australia that they don't have in the in the in the UK. But some of the guys have yeah. said like they oh, the older guys especially have said that they notice a die off dur during the last couple of weeks, and then they're dying to get their next injection. Um, they've talked to their doctors about inc like decreasing the time in between injections um, to try to keep them at that optimal level. But yeah, even Gareth, who I'm good friends with in, in Ireland, he dreads going and getting his injection when he has to go get it because of the pain. Really? Yeah. But it's, it's what yeah, is my it? Son's not looking... Yeah, it is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's once every, let's see, it's once every three months i think so it's like four times a year for you guys no we get it every month we get one mil oh. though every month so right now you're getting one ml one mil every month is it will it change to be like all four ml at some point oh, i don't know i think it does I mean, we've only had one we've only had one injection so far so it's one you're getting one ml every month Yes. And so maybe and they're maybe they're building you, him up to maybe they're doing it in increments to build him up to the bigger injection. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. So I think, you know, he's still quite young mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, I definitely don't see um, you know, Jumping up to four mil. When you said four mil, I was thinking, oh, we're way away from there. Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. Interesting to see where all this lands. But yeah, we're starting now. He's got his second injection in about um, two weeks' time. The nurse was really lovely. She's ordered all our medicines for us. Um, she was completely on board. She was really supportive. I mean, I have to say that kind of element of it was really, really nice. He And because he has learning difficulties, she made sure he was really comfortable and that he doesn't need me to go with him next time he attends, that he could just go and see her and she knew and that he was comfortable with her. So that was all really good. That's, I think I'm, that's I awesome. Think I'm just, yeah, I just think I'm dealing on kind of like multiple um issues with my child because you know he's not quite a child and he's not quite a man shall we say so I'm in this kind of like transition stage of trying to get him to go from one to the other but you know as you know it's it's difficult I think also the hard part with you is that your son was a preemie at 29 weeks and so you're probably having a really hard time figuring out what is what are the challenges from the diagnosis of having Klinefelter syndrome, but then also what are some of the challenges of him being a preemie? And there probably, there isn't a lot of information about what is specifically XXY and then probably like what is from being a preemie. So you're probably having a hard time trying to put a finger on like what, yeah. what this is and then how do I get help for this situation? 
Exactly. Ah. I, ha I have double whammy, and now I've got a barking dog, so I apologize No, that's that. okay. That's okay. Um, so do you have any, like, what is your son doing now? He's in a, I know you guys don't call it high school. What is the last couple of years of, of school? Yeah. So, okay. He is in what we call sixth form, which is the last two years of what you would call high school. So when you're 16 to 18, you're kind of sent to a different school um, or a different kind of area of the school to kind of concentrate on, you know, turning into adulthood. So there's a different emphasis in the UK, regardless if you have conditions or not, that you are preparing to what like adulthood would look like. So I think you do something similar in junior high school. Um, we do ours in prep to go into colleges or university, um, second, you know, higher education, that sort of thing. So he's doing that at the moment. He's doing okay. He does go to a school for children with um, uh, special educational needs. He does have a lot of uh, speech and language therapy at his current place. He still has a learning support assistant in place. But he is passing his exams, so well done on him. He's happy going there, which I think is half the battle to a lot of the parents out there. You know, I think he looks forward to kind of going to school. And the school is supposed to be kind of based around um, uh, kind of like life skills. So you learn things like in the UK, we have a lot of public transport, so they make sure everybody can travel through public transport and everybody's really comfortable with that but also they have a setup where they have um, like a barista setup so you can learn how to make barista coffees and what that means is if you have a visitor visiting the school so that may be a parent or somebody from the council or a supplier or whatever it is or even a tour the student can go and offer them a coffee and they get like steamed milk and espresso and they take an, an order to make sure that they're following orders and they deliver those coffees. And, um, and then we have various people that help them find kind of like, a, I guess it's called work placement. So where you can go into a job and learn how to, you know, get some work experience and then potentially, you know, try to get a job based on <clears throat> your skill level. Well, that's, so it, that's it, awesome. It, it, yeah. Yeah, well, if you ever want to come to the UK, I will riddle you with a very high agenda of things to see and do. You're more than welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I was actually going to go um, at the end of September, but I had to cancel my flight. So I'll I'll get out there eventually. And um, in in those regards, what does what does your son like to do? I, obviously, we've talked about like a lot of the challenges and things like that. But what does he do for fun? What does he What does he What's awesome about your son? That what does he enjoy doing? Okay, well, this is interesting because he is really into gaming which is something he never was interested in. I remember I bought him a PlayStation once. Um, I can't remember what year it was, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't excited. He wasn't interesting. 
are interested in it. Um, we didn't really know what it was. And we were seeing these psychologists and the psychologists were saying, you know, you should get him into gaming, which usually you would hear it the other way around, like, don't get your child interested. But this psychologist was saying, try to get your child into gaming because it, in, in actual fact, it helps them with processing. It speeds up their processing levels because they learn they have to process information quicker. So I was a bit hesitant, but I thought, well, my son's never going to pick this up. But okay, yeah, let's let's get into it. And he got into it, and then he got into this game in America. It's called, like, Fortnite. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yep. And and he absolutely was forced to kind of, like, um, have uh, headphones and a microphone. And he would never speak to anybody. He wouldn't converse to anybody. But eventually, he gained knowledge and experience on playing the game, and he became quite good at it. And then he learned all the um, the guns' names, and he learned I don't know all the skins' names, and you know he he started learning and remembering, and he started speaking, and then he became a bit of a kind of know-it-all. So it was a complete turnaround having gaming for him because it let him excel at his own pace. It let him develop really good processing and let him develop really good speech and language. It was, you know, it was actually more beneficial than than not, shall we say. So that happened. Um and and but apart from that, he is actually quite sporty. So he's very he's got excellent hand to um what we call hand to eye coordination. So he's really good at playing kind of like racket sports. And of course we have things like Wimbledon here. So he's you know, he's a very keen kind of tennis player. We play a lot of local sport in our park. We have a leisure center where we have like football pitches or what you call soccer pitches. And he goes up there every Friday and he plays, you know, amongst um, six aside or whatever it is. So he's quite comfortable up there. He's really comfortable going to the gym. He enjoys watching um, people work out and, uh, you know, online and learning the terminology so he's really good. I mean, some of his vocabulary in terms of terminology is really advanced. I mean, way more advanced than mine is. But, um, you know, I think he just needs to find what it is he's interested in. And I think he it helps him learn. That's really amazing um, about the gaming aspect. And I, I do know that there's quite a lot of gamers in our community. And I was a gamer for a long time. Um, Were you? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It was. It was a. I think I wasn't allowed to have console. My parents got me. We had a computer, and we. I remember as a child, our. I lived in like a kind of a not a cul-de-sac, but kind of a circle, com, like circle neighborhood, and there was a lot of kids growing up. So we we had a lot of outdoor sports during football, which is our not soccer, and then we had hockey, and we we played as a community together outside. But then kids had um, like a Nintendo 64. Yep. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, sorry, we lost each other. No, it's okay. But we, yeah, I grew up. I grew up gaming, and it was an out. It was a, 
it was um, ability to let go and and not focus on the problems and the challenges and and be able to um, enjoy the moment for whatever that was. It was a nice stress reliever. Um, the thing with gaming is gaming is as a gamer for most of my life. Um, I went through periods of time where I ne- I stopped playing games because they're so addicting and they they do even though you develop friends online, it doesn't develop you socially for the in-person. Um, you know, it can, it can be more isolating. Um, and with, with depression and anxiety, preventing yourself from going and being in social situations, which it doesn't seem like your son is doing, um, you know, everything in moderation is what my parents kind of grew, I grew up with. I would agree, uh, agree 100% with that, yeah. Um, I mean, socially, he's still very awkward. Uh, when we meet people, you know, face-to-face, he struggles with eye contact, and um, he kind of struggles with kind of identifying key information and, you know, just sort of um, uh, uh, just, it, well, you know, he just has struggles, let's put it that way. But, you know, he means well, and he's still a nice guy at the end of the day, and people just have to put up with it. I mean, let's be honest. You know, people just have to get over it. If he's not perfect, so what? Yeah, um, definitely. You know, I think, um, I don't think he's addicted. I I see what you're saying about addiction, how some people can be addicted. Oh, my dog's going to go crazy. (laughs) I'm sorry about this. That's okay. um, I have to let him outside. Bear with me one moment. Yep, not a problem. I think we have a fox outside, and he's barking at the fox. Little dog, little dog with with uh, with thinks that he's a big dog. Yes. Small dog with big personality is what we say, um, but we love him. And actually, the dog has been great for my son. Um, you know, just kind of like looking after something and having something to love and something to nurture and something to kind of, you know, love and all those sort of things. So I think the dog's been great. Dogs can also be amazing because when you're when you're an empath and you're constantly feeling other people's feelings and helping other people, when you come home and you need to recharge and a dog will always love you no matter what. And if you had a bad day or a hard day, the dog is always there, usually always happy. And it's, it can, the dog can like take your mind off of a lot of the hardship and things that happen throughout the day and help you kind of recharge your, that empathy that you have. Oh, you're such a fabulous person. <laughs> so oh, you're a real true inspiration to everybody. I tell you, you're fantastic. You're going to be quite the catch when you eventually settle down with whoever it is. Well, thank thank you. Um, so kind of your mother must be very proud. I yes, they definitely are. Um, they've told me quite a few times, so I I it's finally clicked. Um, what would you, what would you to kind of, you know, kind of turn this around or uh, turn it around, but 
what would you tell other families, you know, that are receiving this diagnosis? Um, what would you tell them about from your experience and about your son? Because I, I, I'm not sure if you know, but the termination rate in the States and, and other places <gasps> in, the, in the world is extremely high because of this diagnosis. Do you know, I, I didn't even know that was a thing until I think I was following you and you mentioned that in some of your previous um I don't know if you caught that, but I, I, I heard what you said, and I remember thinking that your podcast um, highlighted that to me in terms of termination. And, I mean, obviously here in the UK, that wouldn't even be uh, – they wouldn't even question it, you know. Um, it, it, it was a bit shocking to find out that that people were – terminating pregnancies for this condition because at the end of the day this condition is not that bad it is no worse than having asthma it's no worse than having arthritis diabetes it's probably are you there yeah i'm here oh yeah you know it's probably no worse than having you know um an occasional bad back. It's it's you know it's not that bad. It's just upsetting when you're given the moment to kind of offload maybe, but you know it's not that bad. There's you know a lot of worse things out there, but you know no, there's you just the fact that anybody's trying to achieve the perfect child is also concerning because. You know, I love my child. My son is great. He's brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. I can, you know, definitely see him continuing his kind of, you know, life as the neurodiverse kind of poster boy in the UK. Um, you know, and, and I think my son is happy for who he is. He may have challenges later on in life, but at the moment he he is happy. And how how can you take that away from somebody? There's a lot you know, of yeah. I think it's, Unfortunately, there's a lot of a lot of terminations are happening um, because <gasps> because of the diagnosis. Unfortunately. Well, that's misinformation, and it should be stopped. Really, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think well the only yeah the only way that it stopped is by our community opening up like you did today and sharing your story and putting putting your life out there put your son putting his life out there to to share that hey like just because of our challenges doesn't mean that we can't live you know productive and happy and um, be a productive member of society and just and live a happy life. Yeah, I feel really bad now for highlighting some of my bad moments. No, not at, at the all. End of the day, they're not that bad. You know, I can. I, I'm going at the end of this. I will uh, maybe not tonight because I'm in a different time zone. Um, but you know, I'll send you a bunch of photos of us having absolute tons of fun, and you tell me is this worth terminating? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, and, and you know, it's your story, right? So all of us have challenges and it's for us to be able to share our challenges is so important because it also shows that, okay, I, I have this challenge at this point in my life, but then I was able to overcome that challenge and all of us are climbing a mountain, yeah. right? All of us, exactly. all of us are going to fall off the mountain and we're going to have to get back up and keep climbing. 
We are. But you know what? We're going to be there to support each other. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, what you've shared today and, and diving into the nitty gritty of, of your life and, and opening up in the UK and, and sharing about, you know, your son, you and your son's story. It's been really wonderful having you on. Oh, well, thank you for inviting us. I've been, um, I've been wanting, I, I, well, I, I feel like I've been following you for ages. And now today was my moment. Um, to actually, you know, connecting with you, but it's been fantastic opportunity. Well, thank you so much. And I will chat with you soon. Okay. All the best and all the best to everybody else out there. And um, yeah, let's stay positive.